Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast with your host and armed services veteran, Tiffany Martschink. Tiffany is an advocate for military veterans especially women who have served and are currently serving in all branches of the military. She is also passionate about suicide intervention and says, suicide awareness is not enough. 22 push UPS a day for 22 days may have brought about awareness, but it doesn't provide any type of intervention. Instead of doing 22 push UPS, how about contact 22 people in your sphere of influence each month? Do a battle buddy check. To find out more about Tiffany and the Medal of Honor podcast, go to her website at gap-medalofhonor.org. Now, let's listen in on this week's episode. Welcome. The TEDx speaker, instructor on LinkedIn learning, and well-known presenter, Lita Citroen, is an expert in reputation management and personal branding. Have a business model that you're never going to find in a business book. They're not teaching this in business school because my business model is not about profitability. And I know that might sound altruistic and, and I'm sounding a little bit like a martyr, but let me explain. Featured in international media for her work in reputation management, Lita has authored powerful books and numerous articles on personal branding. I am deeply passionate about serving my executive clients, my professional clients, the entrepreneurs and thought leaders I work with around the world. Some of these people are looking to amplify their voice in their industry, grow the value of their company and their contribution to their community that they serve. And some of my clients are actually trying to change the world and be a game changer in their space and their field. And it's amazing work. And I absolutely love the opportunity to be on that journey with them, and I'm honored that they choose me to help build their brand and build their reputation. Whether in front of a camera or a live audience, Lita's message is relevant. But there's another community I'm equally as passionate about, and many of you may know that I do a lot of work with our United States military, the men and women who have raised their hand and volunteered to serve our nation. Some of them are still active duty, many of them have retired and separated, and sometimes even some of their spouses come along for the journey. And the challenge with my business plan is this, I make very little money off of my work with the military. I'm being perfectly candid. My income as a business comes from my work on the professional side. The coaching, consulting, speaking, and writing that I do in the corporate world and the entrepreneur space. But I give a lot of my time to the military. So from a business model standpoint, you know, there's the 80-20 rule. I've kind of inverted all of the best practices. I am giving away more time than I am being rewarded for financially. And on paper, that makes no sense. It makes no sense to teach someone to grow a business where maybe 60% of your work is donated, is pro bono. But that's what works for me. I am deeply passionate about both communities that I serve. And I am blessed to have income and rewards coming on both sides. They just sometimes look different. So I encourage those of you who might be struggling with a similar dilemma to consider the fact that, you know, what we get rewarded with and what we feel value in isn't just what goes in the bank. Yes, we have to pay our bills. And no, we can't pay our our mortgage and our office rent with good intention and goodwill. But the abundance that comes from serving, the abundance that comes from from giving away and being being grateful and being generous 
is sometimes more valuable than what shows up in a P&L. I just wanted to share that. I'm not a business case you're ever going to find in business school, but it works for me. And as long as I'm fortunate to have, you know, the, the abundance and the goodness coming towards me, I plan to continue this. I think it's, it's a big part of my brand. It's a big part of who I am. And it certainly is how I want to leave a legacy. You know, I, I think when you, when you work in corporate America and you sort of climb that corporate ladder, you just naturally, if you have that coaching gene, you just naturally kind of become a guide. And if you find your lane, which I did in personal branding, it becomes a natural transition when you start your own business. So when I started my company in 2008, I honestly thought I was going to do a very different business. I thought I was going to take all of this big company marketing, branding, business development experience and work with small companies because I thought that's, that's who would you know, appreciate me so much more and I'd, I'd find it so much more rewarding. And I realized real quickly that what I loved is working with people, not necessarily the company. I became an executive coach kind of by accident. Today, you know, 13 years later, it's a big part of my business. And I've had the honor of, of working with some of the most amazing global executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, uh, professionals, and just kind of got here a little bit by accident. I, I sometimes like to say I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I had never wanted to own a business. I had never thought about being a business owner, an entrepreneur, starting a company. But 2008 happened. And like many executives, I found myself unemployed. And I started putting the resume together and started doing what I had done. You know, any other time I'd been in transition or making a career pivot. And actually, my husband uh, said to me, he said, instead of finding another job, why don't you figure out what you really want to do? Those words changed everything because I realized in that moment that what I had done and what I had loved in those 20 years didn't fit a job description. It really was the definition of being an entrepreneur, being a consultant and a speaker and an author. So I started my own business during the worst economy we'd ever seen in this country, and it worked. It absolutely worked. My business was founded on this principle of helping people tell their story, build their brand, control their narrative. And it worked. It was exactly what the market needed in 2008. And the business took off. So got here a little bit by accident again. But uh, I believe there's a lot of divine intervention, not, not so much accident. Well, well, that's exactly, I mean, that's a huge part of transition. And I talk a lot about that in my books that I've written for service members looking to exit or those of you who've been out, is that this concept of choice is very familiar to a civilian. We, we look for that. We strive for, for choice because choice to us means power. It means we're in the driver's seat and we're making the decisions that serve us best. But if you come from an environment, as you just described, where it is more prescribed and standardized and, and there's less, you know, independent creative thought, let's say, and then you get ready to transition out and, and everybody is saying, you know, thank you for your service. The future is yours. You can have whatever you want. 
oftentimes what I hear is the service member says, so where do I start? What, what do I do first, right? I, that concept of choice and, and the freedom to pick and choose and, and go in any direction is a little bit foreign. And you're absolutely right. That, that is one of the biggest challenges that I come across as I coach veterans or service members getting ready to exit. Well, and I honestly don't know that I would say put a resume together and start applying for jobs. You know, I, I published a book in 2020 called Success After Service. And I worked with a wonderful publisher overseas in London who, who was really passionate about getting a book out there like this. And in that book, I do walk you through the steps of how to make an intelligent, thoughtful career transition out of the military. But I think that, you know, the way to answer the question that you posed is, it, it kind of depends on where the person is starting from. So if you're 24 months out or 18 months out from separation date, it's a very different strategy than if you're 30 days out or, or a week out. And, and trust me, I speak to all of those folks. And the ones that make me a little nervous are the ones that are a week out from separation and they don't know what they're going to do next. They don't know where the paycheck's going to come from. So let's assume you're 18 months out and you've got some time to think about what you want to do next. The first thing I would think about is really what are the aspects of what you've done in the military, whether it's four years or 34 years, that you really enjoy? What are the, the aspects of the work, the environments, the people that you've really enjoyed? Don't think about job title. Don't think about just skill set, but the aspects that really that you enjoyed, right? Maybe where you were really competent and capable. Um, was it team building? Was it leadership? Was it, you know, putting strategies together for really high stakes, high risk, complex situations? And then start to pick apart what it was about that situation and your skills that matched up. And again, I do this before you put the resume and you start applying for jobs, because what most people will do if, if they take that other tact is they'll apply for jobs based on what they, what they did, not necessarily what they enjoyed doing or what they were really good at doing, but what their MOS or their AFSC said, this is what you know how to do. If you can sort of switch the paradigm and say, what are the things I really enjoyed then you start looking at it a little differently. Maybe again, it is team building in high stress situations and a lot of travel. Okay, so let's you know now start turning our radar towards positions or opportunities that might have those elements in them. Eventually, yes, the resume is going to be important. And even if you just start capturing what you've done so that you can later shape it, into something that's a little bit more targeted and branded and, and, and focused, that's fantastic. But I'd say the first thing to do if, you, if you've got that time is to start thinking about what you've loved to do. Now, the first thing to do if you've got 30 days is to think a little bit more aggressively about what the next few months are going to look like. So if you've got 30 days and you're, and you're separating and exiting the military, 
you know, what are the next few months going to mean? Are you relocating? Are you moving into a new community? Are you going back home? Who are the people that you know where you're going to be going? Building that support system of people who can do informational interviews with you, who can advise you about career choices, who can give you some of that support system and structure. I'd almost say that, again, is a little bit more important than, than starting to put together a resume. But if the resume, again, is important to you, then just start capturing. Don't worry about formatting. Don't worry about chronological, reverse chronological. Don't worry about that stuff. Just start capturing information into a document. Challenge, again, I have with just starting to apply for jobs is you will run the risk of two things. Either you will get a job and you will take it because you're so scared of not having something and you'll end up six months later or a year later leaving that job, which is very, very high likelihood. Or you won't get job offers. You won't even get interviews and you'll get really frustrated. So I do advise the, the veterans that I coach and the service members I coach to sort of back up from the process before they dive fully into the process. Well, and, and you're, you know, you're fortunate that at least the employer that you, it sounds like you landed with, had an appreciation for what those characteristics and skills are. There's a lot of confusion in the civilian space about what it really means to serve in uniform. So we actually find that, um, you know, there are, there are employee, employers who, you know, have, have sort of unconscious biases or preconceived ideas of what military service looks like because of what they've seen in, in TV and movies. And, and honestly, I felt guilty to that too. I didn't know what I didn't know because I didn't know anybody who had served. I had no family connection. I didn't have friends who had been praying for their spouse or their family member um, who'd been active duty. And so I didn't have any context except what I had seen on television and in movies. And sometimes that doesn't play very positive. So those are some of the aspects that you can run into if you're not coming from the position of, you know, what do I want to do with my life rather than just finding a job? And let's face it, if, you're, if your job in the military was to be a sniper, yeah, there's not a lot of demand for that in the corporate sector. So you're going to have to transfer and export those skills of, you know, attention to detail and precision and working well under pressure that it takes to be a sniper into whatever you want to do going forward. I think that's an interesting uh, choice of, uh, of jobs, too, that you mentioned, because um, that, that is something that I have noticed in the military. Um, so the people that I know who are in those different combat arms MOS, whether a sn sniper, infantry, you know, a tanker, what all those combat arms MOS, where they can walk around and kind of you know stick out their chest and rightly so in the military because of what they have done, can just uh, their, their minds are blown when they say, okay, my time for the military has ended and it's time to move on to whatever's next. They go from sticking out their chest and standing up tall to shrinking a couple of inch, inches and wondering, what in the world am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. Because of that very thing. Yep. It's very common. 
And, and even to the point, you know, you knew how to do administrative. It doesn't mean you were passionate about it. It's what the military asked of you and where you found a career path in uniform. It doesn't mean that that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. And, and then there are jobs like sales where I've, I've coached a lot of veterans who say, I can't do sales. You were a recruiter in the Marine Corps. What makes you think you can't do sales, you know, or you, you negotiated high conflict situations. What makes you think you can't do sales? You know, the jobs don't go straight across. And then here's what also complicates it. And I, I literally just, I think it was last week or the week before, wrote an article for military.com about these funky and trendy job titles that civilian companies come up with. You know, chief happiness officer and, you know, things that, to somebody coming out of the military, it goes, what on earth does that mean, right? I mean, I'm a happy person, but what does it mean to work in a company and get paid to do that? So civilian companies don't have, you know, the system and the structure like an MOS system where you can sort of go straight across. We, we call jobs different things based on our culture and our, and our company profile. So that gets really confusing too. Oh, yeah. And then you got to negotiate. You know, it's a full-time job looking for a full-time job. It should <laughs> it be. Really it should be. Absolutely, it should be a full-time job. Somebody should get up in the morning and have a strategy for what they're going to do all day long in order to find a job. I mean, you have to. You don't send out a couple resumes and then just sit back and wait. I also have an issue when somebody says to me, well, I send 50 resumes a week. I'm like, what a waste of time. Send three resumes a week and be really strategic and targeted with those three resumes. And you have a much higher chance of success than if you send 50 resumes, you know, just like sh shooting into the air and, and hoping one of them sticks. Um, that's a big difference coming out of the military. So would you say then that it's more of a, a network type thing to do instead of just pumping out resumes and applications? Well, networking is a huge part of how we build our careers. Absolutely. And there is networking in the military. It's, it just looks different. In the civilian sector, who you know, what they think about you and how they're willing to help you is, is tremendous. And whether that means somebody is willing to give you inside information about a job that's not even posted that they think you'd be great for, whether they're willing to advocate and perhaps walk your resume to a hiring manager instead of you having to go through the same pipeline that everybody else goes through, or whether your network is coaching you and, and giving you advice about how to approach a certain job. Networking is tremendous. You have to have certain skills and you have to have certain character qualities that match up with that company's culture. <clears throat> Excuse me, but your network is really what gets you in. And part of the reason I advise three to four targeted resumes instead of 50 is because think about the amount of work, not only networking, that has to, has to be done in order to find that synergy with a company. You've got to do informational interviews. You've got to talk to people about the industry, about the company, about their career path, and really peel the layers back about what that hiring manager or recruiter at that company is looking for so that you can target your cover letter, you can target your resume to speak to those issues. 
You have to understand company culture. That's a huge thing in the civilian sector. You know, we spend billions of dollars on infrastructure and talent and brick and mortar, but also culture. Culture is what defines companies. You have so much competition, whether it's retail or professional services or manufacturing, that what makes somebody choose to buy from and work for one company over another? A lot of it is culture. You know, what's the atmosphere there? What what does the company value? Where does it prioritize? That has to be known by a candidate before they try to put their materials together. So there's a lot of work that goes into applying for a job. And I think what, what the mistake a lot of people make, and this isn't just a veteran mistake, is they just create one standard resume that lists everything they've ever done and they throw it out there at every opportunity to make the person on the receiving end do the work of figuring out if this person might be a fit. And, you know, I mean, that, that's putting the onus on the employer, which they're already overwhelmed, but it's also not, not coming at it from a very targeted approach as a, as a job candidate. I would rather see somebody say, you know, I've done my homework. I've talked to people. I've sort of peeled the layers back and this opportunity really suits what I know how to do, what I'm passionate about doing, and where I think I can add the most value, and then create documents that speak to that, go into a job interview with that type of a mindset and narrative, and have a really healthy conversation with an employer. It's a very different approach, and it is what works. So I'm, I'm admittedly not a huge fan of resumes. I mean, I, every book I've written, I, I sort of Admit that at the front, right? Because as a branding professional, what brands do is they look forward, right? A brand is a promise or an expectation of something you're going to get if we have a conversation. A resume looks backwards. A resume says, here's what I've done. And kind of circling back to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, if all you're doing is looking at what you know how to do, that doesn't necessarily indicate what you can do in the future right? You, you may have done these things, maybe you did them okay, but does that mean that's what you want to do? Does that mean that's where the, you know, the future is going to reward you for that kind of work? So a, a resume is simply a look backwards. If you can think of a resume as part of a narrative about you that says, in my nine years, these were the things I did successfully, and that's why I'm here today with these skills and, and passions and character traits. And here's what that means for you, Mr. Ms. Employer, who is looking for somebody to solve these problems. Now you've woven it together into a story and not just use it as a look backwards. And that's where most people miss it with resumes. We still have to have keywords and meta tags and all of that in there. Those are important, but it's the narrative part that that we forget. And so we present this document as if that's supposed to tell the person reading it where we can add value and what we can do going forward. And again, if you're coming out of the military, a lot of those terms and the things you did are not relatable. They're not exportable. So what does that mean if I'm looking at your resume? Great. You were a weapons mechanic. Fantastic. I don't know what that means if I'm hiring a project manager. Right. And think about it too, Tiffany, you know, we have so many different tools now besides just that document. We have things like LinkedIn. We talked about networking. We, we have all these different touch points that somebody can 
not only learn about us, but can find us. So for a job seeker who, you know, is looking for a position and maybe they've done the targeting and they've got a sense of I'm my I'm moving back to my hometown and these are the kinds of companies that I could see myself working for in these kinds of roles. And so I've kind of got a little bit of my target. Then where else can that employer learn about you? And maybe they find you before you actually find them because the market is shifting, right? The job market post pandemic is going to shift. So employers are going to start becoming more proactive in finding, finding employees. So where are they going to find you? They're not going to find you on some massive database of resumes. They're going to find you on things like LinkedIn. They're going to find you through your network of contacts when they go to their network and say, we're trying to hire a project manager with these skills. Do you know anyone? That's why it's it's so much more than just a resume. Well, because your network isn't, you know, they're not just there to advocate for you. They're also there to give you backstory, right? So let's say you really want to work in the, the defense industry, and whether it's an administrative or a technical job, and you say, you know, I really want to work in defense and Lockheed Martin is a great company in my backyard. Well, your network is also going to be able to say, but have you thought about also working on the commercial side? Or have you thought about these other companies which might be more emerging in the aerospace field? Or, you know, Honeywell is doing different things that more align. So your network is actually sort of like an an enlisted group of coaches and mentors that can guide you based on their experience and, and sort of keep you in check with some of your perceptions and and goals. So not only can they introduce you and, you know, and help advance you, but they can be a sounding board and a set of mentors, which is really important. Coming out of the military, you know, my understanding, and and I've never served, but I've worked with thousands of of, uh, prior military, is that family unit that, you know, got your six, that, that, that brothers and sisters, that's really hard to leave behind. And if you can come out of the military with a network that resembles some of that, it also sets you up for success because you don't feel isolated. You don't feel alone. And that's a real risk for uh, folks coming out is they feel very isolated very quickly. Even if they have a family, it, it can be a very isolating experience. You mentioned something about an informational interview as you do your job search. For somebody who might be listening to this episode who's getting out and does not know what an informational interview is, what does that look like? So an informational interview can look very different, right? The way I teach people to do an informational interview is this way. It's a specific meeting that is not a job interview. It is not a sales pitch. You are there to get specific insight information. When I started my business in 2008, I knew a lot of things about business. I knew a lot of things about my skill set and my and my expertise. The thing I didn't know was how to build a company. I had never done that before. So I sought out to do informational interviews and I wanted to talk to anyone who had ever started a company. I didn't care if it was a consulting and coaching firm or a dry cleaner, a Mary Kay Cosmetics I didn't care. If you had started your own company, I wanted to understand how, you know, how you did it. And the the point of an informational interview is to get insight into specific questions. So I always say it's either the industry 
It's the company or the job. And in my case, I wanted to understand the job, right? The job of being a founder. So I talked to these entrepreneurs and business owners, and some of them had started companies that failed. And that was fine too. They had started a company. And I always asked three questions. So other things would come up, but I would always ask these three questions because what I was looking for was data. The three questions I always asked were, first, what's one thing you did in starting your company that you're really glad you did, right? It was a home run. It was a, it was a smart thing to do. Second, what's one thing you did in starting your company you wish you hadn't done? Call it a mistake, a failure, something you wish you had not done. And then third, I would tell them a little bit about what I was thinking of doing and get some advice. Other things would come up in the conversation, but those three questions needed to be answered. And then once I had done all my interviews, I threw out the extremes and I looked at the data and I was able to make a plan for starting my company based on all this advice. So for a job seeker, I would say approach an informational interview the same way going into the conversation to learn something, something specific about the industry, about the company, or about the type of job or maybe the person's career path, and keep those lanes separate. Because it can get very enticing in a conversation to get kind of swept up in the moment, right? I I was coaching a young gentleman the other day who spent six years in in the army, and and he said, Oh my gosh, everybody I talk to who tells me what they love about their job or their company, he said, all I I want to do that. Like I get so caught up in it that that's what I want to do, right? So if you think about it as I'm collecting data, it kind of, you resist that. But it's not a job interview. So to approach an informational interview, you might find somebody on LinkedIn who, you know, has worked in that industry for a long time and they might be a really good source to help you understand the industry reach out. You know, people, some people have time on their hands right now. They certainly have over the past year, but reach out and say, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning out of military. I'm, I'm pursuing a career in your industry. I would love to jump on a phone call with you for 15 minutes and ask you some questions about what it's like to work in your industry or what it's like to work in your company. Or, you know, again, whichever of those three areas you're pursuing. If the person agrees and is willing to give you time, you've set a time contract, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It's not open-ended. So the other person knows what to expect. And then the meeting has to be focused, right? So what gets really frustrating for people like myself who are happy to do informational interviews with people is it com- they come in under one door. They come in through one door, but then it quickly turns to something else. And that's not there. So if you start pitching me on hiring you or, you know, helping you in some way that wasn't agreed upon it ahead of time, or if all of a sudden we're 30 minutes into this conversation and you told me it was 15 minutes, that's breaking the rules of an informational interview. Set a time contract. Definitely at the beginning of the call, pleasantries are fine. You know, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You know, it looks like you've got a long career at this company or in this industry, and I'm getting ready to exit, you know, the Marine Corps, and I'm and I'm looking at this. So I have a set of questions for you. And you go through your questions and let them answer. Your job is to get information, not to talk about yourself. Now, at the end, they might say, well, tell me more about you. 
And that's perfectly fine. They can ask that. They can ask to see your resume. They can, they might be so impressed with your questions and the way you've handled yourself that they want to help you. And they might have some, you know, some referrals for you. Perfectly fine if they offer that. But you can't go in under one, you know, supposition and then change the rules. And that's where a lot of people do make that mistake in informational interviews. People will give you so much information. They're, they're so generous with sharing their experience and insights and especially for somebody who's worn, you know, our nation's cloth. So that's really what an informational interview does. I think it can be easy to do that. It can be easy to, because you're the one looking for employment, it can be easy to slip into the, hey, I do want some information, but I also want to give you my sales pitch. So you have to make sure that you're very intentional to not do that. And they can change the rules. That's the beauty of it. They can change the rules. If you get to 15 minutes or 13 minutes and you say, you know, I I appreciate your time. I know we're coming to the end of the 15 minutes and that's what I'd ask for. It is perfectly fine if the other person says, no, no, Tiffany, you're asking great questions. Let's keep going. That's perfectly fine. It's not fine for you to keep going when you said you were only going to take 15 minutes. And I appreciate what you're doing. There's so much confusion. And, you know, as a civilian, I can't possibly begin to imagine what what the transition out of the military is like. I just know that I've worked with thousands of people who, you know, have all said the same thing. And and when I speak on a on, on an installation or at a conference or even on a webinar, I always want to let the people listening know that whatever questions, concerns, fears that they have, everyone else who's been in that same spot, who sat in that same seat, has had that same concern. I mean, what do you wear to a job interview? How do you figure out what you want to be when you leave the military? How do you find a community that's going to relate to you? I mean, these are real questions. And, mm-hmm. and we can't begin to think that, you know, because I've written a couple books or, you know, there's some programs out there that that's going to answer everything. So I really encourage anyone listening to find that network, find people who are going to mentor and support you and take advantage of, of, of what they've learned, but still make your own decisions. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. And have a nice day.